Okay, guys, so welcome to another episode of Investors Gallery. Um, where one day we will shoot the podcast in my actual art gallery. Uh, we were doing it at my desk, which I think looks really cool. So you can go back and look at some past episodes of that. And sooner or later, we'll transition on the other side of the wall to my actual art gallery. The point of this conversation and the point of this platform is to bring experts in many different realms. We love real estate. Uh, I do multifamily and our special guest, George, does multifamily, but I'll let him um, go in a little bit more detail in a second. But we are here so the audience, the public can have a free live kind of on air conversation with investors. So welcome everybody to Investors Gallery. I would like to welcome all the podcast outlets that um, that you might be listening to, listening to this on. It's, it's too many to, to list. Um, but thank you, George, for joining us. And kind of a short notice, I think, what, maybe a week or a couple of days ago. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, ago, I asked George. Yeah, so um, tell us who you are, what you do, and um, bring us into your world. world. <laughs> sure, we can go back as far as you want. I started out as a bioscientist, uh, went into computer science, still something was missing. A few years back, my sister and I, we founded a construction company. And I think I finally began to figure out exactly what that was. So for me, that missing piece was entrepreneurship. After that, I decided that I wanted to found my own company and I'd already been a landlord. So I decided that this time I would go back to being a landlord, but I was gonna do it at scale. I wanted to do multifamily. And so about two years ago, I acquired my first apartment. It was in Orlando, Florida, 14 units, heavy reposition. And I took that on as a joint venture. Great learning experience. Uh, I mean, I, I think that uh, over time, most people tend to move from the heavy repositions more up towards the B and the A class properties. And uh, I think that I definitely do understand that evolution better myself now. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's really nice when you have a property that just needs maybe something like a little touch up on the outside and some operational improvements. So from there, I acquired a B class as a co-GP last year. That was in Louisville, Kentucky, 104 units. And I became a GP also that month, November of 2021 on 34 units in East Tennessee. So maybe I'll just uh, hand it back to you, Presley, and we'll just see uh, what you'd like to know and where we can take this. Oh, I have many questions. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to say obviously, but it might not be obvious to um, a lot of the, the listeners um, but you transitioned into multifamily um, because of the, the scalability. It's kind of hard to do that with single family. You can, but it's increasingly difficult. Tell us what was it like to go from, and I'm assuming you had um, single family rentals? Yeah, in fact, it was just one. So I was very okay. busy as a bioscientist. Then I went into data science and okay. uh, then again, starting to found a company so I didn't really build that out. I never got to the point where I was, you know, pulling out my hair because I had too many single family rentals and I was stretched too thin. So I think I cut it off uh, early and so much the better for that. 
how did you transition? Um, well, let's start there. How did you transition mentally from have it sound like you had everybody's job is important, right? Because <laughs> everybody's job pays the bills. Right. It sound like you were in a category where um, the world needs you just a little bit more than maybe, you know, um, <laughs> the guy or girl at IHOP, which, you know, we love them too. Uh, but how did you transition mentally from having a W-2, one rental into uh, a 14 unit? Yeah, well, I was always a student, right? I went as far as a PhD, did some postdocs in bioscience. So for me, taking an academic approach is, is pretty clear as a first step. I just watched thousands of YouTube videos, went to every meetup in my area. And next thing you know, uh, it, just, it just really clicked. It made sense to me. So, um, you know, I, as a bioscientist, I was just literally working 12, 14 hour days, wasn't too out of the uh, ordinary for me. And then I went into data science. And, and again, uh, it, was, it was pretty challenging. It was total change of career. And I was again, working some long hours. So I was looking for something that was going to be as passive as possible. And I think over time you realize the idea of uh, multifamily. I mean, you can do it passively. You can be completely passive, but it may be um, less active or requiring less labor than trying to build a large portfolio of single family rentals, but it's still pretty busy. So mm -hmm. over time, again, I just watched thousands of videos, met everybody, talked to everybody that had done it before me. And, you know, it is, it is, a, it is a big difference. I mean, you have to go from one set of funding to a completely different set of programs. And the uh, investors that you have, if people investing in say fix and flips or whatever, you know, they may not be the ones that are going to follow you into multifamily. So, I mean, really, I think it is a, it's a great big mindset shift. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would turn it back to you. What, what, what do you think? Or where'd you like to, uh, to hear more about? Uh, well, I have many questions. <laughs> I'll probably have to more so stop asking you questions than anything else. Um, what was the scariest moment either in transitioning from W-2 and the, the rental into multifamily or after you started your first multifamily into now, what was the scariest moment and or was there a point where at that specific point in time, you said, I've made the wrong decision and I, you know, I need to look at doing something different or did you ever have that moment? Yeah, I'm not sure if I ever quite had that moment. So if I had to pick one, just pulling the trigger on the first property, that's always the hardest. And I could go through the evolution of that. We just noticed that all the properties around us had been repositioned. And at that point, it kind of made sense. You always have to ask the question, hey, why is this opportunity left there for me? If this is such a good opportunity, why didn't somebody take it first? And it was, it was obvious, it was just the number of units. And uh, that, that really helped, just seeing that everybody around us had improved their property, had done well. You know, we just have to pull through with this. We were in the middle of COVID. We didn't know what was going to happen. A lot of people expected prices would fall. I would say they softened a little bit. They might have fallen in some areas. But across the board, we didn't see the prices fall. So it turned out to be exactly the right moment. Uh, there was deal fatigue. There had been two deals that had fallen through on that property before. 
and we were able to get an offer accepted at least $50,000 less uh, than we expected would be possible. We're talking about like 800 versus 850. I mean, we're not right. talking a million, multi-million dollar transaction. So that was significant. Was your, did you do a, a 506B raise for that then? So this was a joint venture, but really everything I've done has been a 506C. I just okay. got thrown into the deep end. I got some advanced partners and that's just how they did things. And at this point, I don't really want to go backwards. As you know, if you do a 506C and you do the work to make sure that everybody is accredited, you take reasonable steps. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get in trouble with a 506B is much more subjective. Right. Yes. Um, as um, our securities attorney, Melvin, on the call knows. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I mean, there's ways to mitigate that risk, but I've got a question for you, George. Um, oftentimes I'm counseling my clients on, you know, the proper way to jump into a team. And I'm curious, you know, how did you end up meeting your team members uh, what made you feel comfortable actually going into business with them? Because as you know, um, this is a stressful industry. Um, and, you know, to be in business with somebody in multifamily that you don't like is, is a, it can be a train wreck. So how did you, <laughs> how, how, did, how did you all know each other? How did you, you know, think, come to join this team? Um, and I've got one question after that. Yeah, perfect. So uh, four of us, we met at Dealmaker Live, and I want to say this was the first Dealmaker. Uh, don't remember exactly what year it was. I came on a little later, and that would have been 2020. So I was still going to every meetup in my area and was meeting some multifamily people. And one of my partners, Paul, he was there at that meetup, and we just sort of clicked. He invited me to join the group and help me to get started. So at that point, I had some entrepreneurial experience. I had experience as a landlord. I'd read some books, but really had not uh, gone very deep in the multifamily route. So it was just about, for me, getting out there and meeting a lot of people and you just meet the people with whom you click. Okay, yeah, I, you know, I, I tell people when I speak at conferences, it's good to join a team, but don't just jump out right away. Vet your team members, make sure you all work well together. Um, when I first started working in law, um, our partners used to say that, you know, we've got to be able to work with you for 90 hours a week. Um, if we don't like you, we're not going to hire you. So um, do, your, do your due diligence on your team members. My next question is, I noticed on your website, you're in investor relations. And... Uh, those of us in this space know that investor relations can be used as a, as a disguise for just raising capital. And um, I'm curious as to what goes into investor relations. Um, you know, what, what are your day-to-day duties? Because, you know, compensating for raising capital, absolute flat transactional, a flat fee, non-transactional related um, is a no-no. Um, how do you all get around the investor relations tag? Uh, what are you what are you doing to add value every day? Yeah, so great question. I mean, I jumped into the investor relations because every team is going to need to have some sort of thought leadership program through which you're going to go out and meet investors. So I set that up. But definitely, I'm involved in every one of the deals that we have going forward. 
So uh, again, I mean, I, I may take the lead in reaching out to investors and finding new investors, but again, every deal that we close, uh, you know, I'm there in the asset management as well. Great, great. Thank you. Um, I want to go back to your first deal. How did you guys operate as far as the property management go uh, or went? Was it enough um, revenue to have a property management or did you guys, were, were you close enough to kind of manage it yourself? Well, because this was such a heavy reposition, one of my partners who was managing the construction, he did the on-site management at first. Of course, banks don't like that. And especially if it's your first project, if you have five or six, it's usually not an issue. So as uh, the construction progressed, we got to the point where now we have new tenants and we have a quite different tenant base than what we started out with. Uh, in the old days, you could smell the pot rolling out even when the windows were closed. And uh, as, as that changed, we, we got a new tenant base that was really the time for us to bring in the professional management. Mm. So did it go from a, a C to a B or B to an A? Uh, yeah, this is more of a C to a B. So we don't have uh, a whole lot of amenities. We've got a lake next to us and that's a beautiful amenity. We got a dock. But yeah, B is about as far as we could take that. Okay, wow. How has being in multifamily for roughly two years um, and now like actually being in it, how has your life changed and transitioned from being at a W-2? Well, it's amazing. And it's just really the last five and a half months that I've been out of the W-2. And it's just amazing. Like, for example, today, I was able to go out for, uh, for a hike for a couple hours. I got at least 14,000 steps. I was able to take my son to urban air and he was able to go and bounce for a little while and have some fun to just to be able to do whatever the family needs, whether it's to go over to my father-in-law's house and fix a drawer or just to be able to take care of my own health. It's just been priceless to me. Were you at DealMaker Live? I was. Okay. Um, <laughs> you probably didn't see me because most of the, <laughs> I should say this on there. Most of the conference, I was in a hotel room working on our multifamily course, but I was there as well. <laughs> okay. I was there as well. So uh, hopefully I'll, I'll see you next year. Um, oh, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm really bad at going to conferences and using the networking time, you know, to, as my advantage and not necessarily going to all the, the, um, the informational, uh, panels and so on and so forth. How did you enjoy uh, Deal Make a Life for this year? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Uh, a lot of great people, amazing networking. It's just amazing how uh, through that Hoover app, it's just taken off and you get all of these sort of off grid uh, mm -hmm. opportunities to just meet people. So it's not just the conference and the mm -hmm. people you meet, like you literally have these meetups springing out and and that was an amazing experience so yeah i completely availed myself of all those opportunities starting with uh brian briscoe the first night yeah yeah um what made me think about that was um michael said when you know when he first really started doing deals and he would come home during the middle of the day and his wife was like what are you doing he's like i don't know i don't know what to do i don't have i don't have to be at work there's no no place that i i absolutely have to be right now 
And it's I, I could see how it's a, a very weird feeling. Um, I've been both self-employed and um, I've been an entrepreneur and W2 kind of both my whole life. So I've really never had days off because uh, I've been in both worlds. So I know what it's like to come home and, you know, it's three o'clock. Maybe I wouldn't look at properties or, you know, maybe I was at a day job and this was the day off and I was doing, you know, real estate work. But it is a very weird feeling uh, when you're used to a nine to five or whatever your schedule is. And now it's it's a Tuesday afternoon at right. you know, one o'clock and you're used to coming back from lunch and you're like, right. what do I do with the rest of my life for now? So that, yeah, that, that's really funny and cool. Question on the Wova app, were you able to, did you see the virtual rooms that were set up? The virtual meeting rooms? I'm not sure if I did. I do remember the uh, in-person. What I will do is, so I set up uh, a virtual room to make a contact list for as obviously as many people who saw it. And I had everyone, I'm giving away my secret sauce. So, <laughs> uh, but I had everyone who saw the, the room comment their, um, their name, obviously their contact information, what they need, um, what they're looking for, and also what they can provide. So I'll, I'll forward you over that list. It's, it's a pretty decent sized list. It might have been, uh, I don't know, maybe 80 to 100 different people on there. So hopefully uh, it'll be a benefit to you as well. Um, yeah, but I would yeah. love to see that. That's uh, very valuable. It is very, very That's, that's one of my that. secret sauces I do at, at my conferences. Um, what advice would you give uh, the listeners on here? who are transitioning into multifamily? Well, you got to find your niche. It's, uh, it's complicated and you can be the one who's out front, the sort of the face of the company and build up the investor base. Maybe you're good at running construction. Uh, you could be good at finding deals, different ways to find deals too, right? There's using the computer and looking at the data. There's, uh, you know, the more, face-to-face -face approach where maybe you're actually building the relationships and you're sending out uh, a letter mailing campaign or just driving around and finding those mom and pop places, the ones that are only marketed by a telephone number. Mm -hmm. And you go call that number and you find out uh, how to reach the owners. So I think that there are many ways to do it, but until you find that niche, uh, I mean, you do have to be a little bit of a generalist at first. You got to understand how the process works, but before you can actually find your team and really get serious about finding deals, you got to figure out where you fit in. Do you feel comfortable in sharing what are your favorite top two um, sources of deals? Some, some people guard it with their life and I, and I get it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I say I got a lot and, and there's, there's those that I've tried and, and those that I'm excited to try. So I, I'll be open with you. I think, that building relationships has got to be the number one. So we've got a member of the team, Tom Kirkpatrick, who's really great at doing that. And he found us just one of the most amazing deals I've ever seen. Tom is and on your team? Huh? Yeah, Tom. Tom is on your team? Okay. Yeah, Tom's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty famous. And, you know, I saw his picture up on DML when we were coming back yep. from break. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
so yeah, he, uh, he was reaching out for years to this place. It was marketed literally only by a telephone number on the shed by the pool. And he got to know the property manager slash handyman and uh, called him back a couple times and got a couple no's. But after the second call, he got an incoming call a couple of weeks later and said, yeah, we're ready to deal. So, I mean, when you do it through personal relationships like that, that's playing the long game. But when you look at the quality of the deal, I mean, this is a place where we could raise rents. I want to say it was about 38% right out of the box. That's before wow. we did anything. And of wow. course, we set to work immediately doing everything we could from landscaping, uh, updating the, the pool furniture to the, the interiors. But when you have mar- uh, rents that are that far below market, uh, that's very, very powerful. I mean, we could just hit our, hit our numbers just by raising rents to market. Part of that is the strength of the market, but most of it was just having an asset that was not optimized. So when you talk about my favorite way to find deals in a market like this, where we could be at the top and we don't know if it'll be anything like last time, generally you can't fight the last battle, uh, but there are, there are some similarities and some key differences between this and the last recession. Uh, I really feel a lot more comfortable with some of these smaller deals where it's mom and pop and there's a lot of meat on the bone rather than going after these things that might have 200 units and you've got a lot of very professional uh, competition and everybody thinks they know what it's worth. I mean, you Mm -hmm. really got to outbid at that point. Mm -hmm. Shut up, Melvin. (laughs) (laughs) I know my business. business, We we complement each other very well. I'm the, uh, hey, let's underwrite 150, 350 units. And my partner is like, 50 units, Presley, 50 to 75 units. Leave the other ones. I'm like, but no, but, and, you know, the big ones never pin. So we're, we're in the Houston market and, uh, or, re- you know, really the Texas market. <clears throat> and yeah, nothing pencils in Houston, nothing, obviously nothing pencils in Austin, uh, San Antonio, you might get a little something close. Dallas just depends on where in Dallas. But yeah, the, the bigger deals are very, very, very tough to pencil. Yeah. So, I mean, we do that too. Of course, everybody is doing that 150 deal thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that works too. I mean, I've, I haven't done the letter writing campaign yet. And, and thank God I'd probably go nuts. But uh, <laughs> That's why you hire a VA. Huh? Hire a VA, just hire a VA for that. Well, true, true. Uh, yeah, there you go. But uh, I don't know. I got my VA doing other things. She's great. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's getting to be the time that I might need to hire two. That's getting frightening. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, speaking of frightening, George, uh, as a securities attorney, you know, we don't sleep from subscription to exit, right? We're always worried about investors. Um, how important is investor communication to you and your team and how do you go about that process? Yeah. So investor communication is very important. You hear a lot of people say, Hey, I got good returns from this syndicator, but I'm never going to invest with them again. Why? Because they didn't communicate. So I feel like it's the easiest part of the puzzle. So why not excel at it? And uh, we make a point of communicating every month. We have an email. We're always open. Obviously, people text me all the time, and I'm open to that. But we also have a webinar each quarter. 
And I think it's very important to have multiple lines of communication and to get something out at least monthly. Great answer. Okay, so you have the amazing sparkling gold hat that says syndicator. What is current? What are you looking for now as far as deals? And you kind of hinted on it um, a few seconds right. ago. And, and second follow-up question is what is the goal? What is, I, I am now doing these types of deals and this is what I want to keep doing for the rest of my life. Or after I do this, this, and this, I'm retired. Yeah. Wow. So let me start with what sort of deals I'm looking for. And you're right. I did mention that I do like the mom and pop stuff. I like the smaller stuff these days. I feel like that's possibly the one place that hasn't been overly explored. Uh, I'm also moving more towards the middle band of the country. I like everything from, say, Cincinnati to East Tennessee. Part of that is because I live in Michigan. I've got a great partner in East Tennessee. And anything we can hit uh, between I-75 on, say, Knoxville uh, up to Cincinnati, that's definitely within four hours of either one of us. Okay. What part of Michigan are you in? I'm sorry, what? What part of Michigan are you in? Oh, I'm just north of Detroit. I'm not too far from Lake St. Clair. Okay. I'm going to reach way out on a limb and ask you, um, did you happen to be in Dr. Lumley's lab? Oh, no, but that sounds like that might be a tiny bit familiar. What, uh, what discipline is this? Yeah, Wayne yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know, but the name sounds a little bit familiar. I've worked in many labs there. <laughs> I, I, it was it was a stretch, but uh, yeah, I, we I might have <laughs> rubbed elbows at some point. Yeah, bump bump paths. Yeah. Um, so, what is the what is the either the the ultimate goal? Uh, maybe doors. What what where? When would you feel comfortable saying I've done enough? Well, you know, I think that in our business, uh, we're the sort of people that it's never enough. I think that we'd find a new mountain to climb no matter what. So I don't know if I can give you a number, but uh, I would really say I do play it by ear. I'm loving the freedom that I have right now. I mean, the freedom that I can go out to a conference, I'm heading out to the GOB network next week. And to be able to do that, and that it's on, I wanna say it's a Wednesday and a Thursday, to be able to do that is just awesome. <laughs> Not have to ask anybody. So I don't know, do I need a thousand, 5,000, 10,000? I really couldn't tell you. Yeah, because when you get to 10,000, 20,000 will look so much better, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm afraid that's how it is. So I'm also interested in exploring different niches. Like right now, uh, one of the great things about being a co-GP is that you can work with experts in a different niche, something that you haven't done. So, you know, I've been in class B, I've been in class C, I've done a heavy reposition. I've, I've been in a couple that you might call, say, a mom and pop deal. But... Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, a hotel, the multifamily conversion. And wow. that's something that's always excited me. It's very difficult. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so to work along with a, uh, someone who's a master in his field, that made a lot more sense to me than just trying to call up those hotels myself, uh, negotiate, getting out of the franchise, and then working with the architect for, I don't know, for a first deal, at least trying to figure out, you know, whether and where you need to knock down the walls. Mm -hmm. So uh, really happy to try and conquer 
other phases of commercial real estate while I'm at it? Hotel conversions are difficult as an understatement. Right. Um, how tight were your margins on that deal? That, that's what we've had the, the biggest issue with. The margins are usually non-existent. Right. And that's the problem that I had with one of the partners I brought in there is that he's been looking for those. And, you know, as soon as you got to start knocking down the walls, I mean, the, the, re, uh, the budget just goes out of control, right? And you just can't make it pencil. So I can tell you a few of the things that help to make it worthwhile. That's actually something that's still ongoing right now. It's a, it's a five or six C, but I'm, I'm not here to thump the deal, but I'll tell you some of the things that I was impressed with on the deal. And one is that it was larger rooms. Uh, another is that there's a large 55 plus and a growing 55 plus population in the area. Mm. And so you have a demand for relatively small rooms and you're starting out with rooms that are significantly larger, like 360 to say 716 versus your average or ordinary hotel room that might be around 300. And the deal is also starting with kitchenettes, which is huge. Even if you're going to throw out those small fridges and replace them with full size, it's a huge benefit that you've already got the, the plumbing going on. Because it's hard enough when you have to run that on the back of, it's always going to be on the back of the bathroom, right? So that they only have to run at one place. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a situation where you've got to put all that in and, and where there's just like nothing there to begin with uh, in, in terms of the kitchen, that's really hard. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's what we were running into. Um, yeah. And it, the, I think the problem that I'll say we had with the the conversion is it looks perfect you know because it's always a, a long stay long-term stay hotel mm -hmm. and like you said the kitchenette is already there and you're like all i have to do is this and this until you know you start running the numbers mm -hmm. and realizing like oh i need to get this uh really cheap at a really good cap rate to make all this other stuff kind of fall into place but yeah that's <laughs> yes yeah, we we've we've from those encounters, we've just kind of stayed away from uh, the conversions and, you know, just done um, the stereotypical uh, syndication value add, you know, yeah. multifamily deals. Um, Incidentally, when we first started looking at that, I started getting clients that were interested and the deals were somewhat penciling, um, but the biggest hurdles were zoning. Um, you know, they were trying to, the zoning was tough in different areas. They were trying to convert. Um, and they also didn't plan for the actual like conversion. It's a hell of a project to manage. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and then I started getting these, you know, some of these gurus that were going and doing these conversions were failing horribly and getting sued. So just from a, from a risk standpoint, I mean, I do, I've got a lot of clients doing it. I think if you do it, if you can do it well, do it well. Um, but that, that, you know, those were some considerations that led us to kind of, you know, we, store, we kind of steer away from it. But good yeah, luck to you. You, know, yeah, some, some of you guys are, uh, you know, raising capital and are on the way. So congrats. Yeah, thanks. And that was another thing that made this perfect. This is the one that just ticked all the boxes because there was a prior uh, purchaser that fell out, didn't work, but they were able to rezone as multifamily. Nice. So the franchise terminates upon sale. And it's already been rezoned multifamily, 
but you're right. There's there's huge uh, roadblocks to, to the project. I mean, it's in some ways it's it's a lot closer to doing ground up construction where you have a lot of risk in you know can you even rezone it like you want? Are you going to get the variances, etc.? Yeah. yeah, these are pretty serious roadblocks to most of the projects, why they can't go forward. How are you guys dealing with um, the parking? Because I, I hear that is a really big issue transitioning. <clears throat> do you have already have enough parking spaces coincidentally, or do you have to build out for more parking? So the parking is good. I can't quote you the exact number of spaces or ratio, but, uh, but that's helpful. Bike racks uh, have helped my clients with that issue. Mm. So, you know, maybe a small um, impervious uh, cover expansion, but bike racks count as a certain number of parking spaces, at least in some jurisdictions we've done these deals. So that's a little trick of the trade. I like it. I like it. That's outstanding. Yeah, bikes are very popular these days, it seems. All right. Everybody is off of mute. Um, I want to open it up. Um, this is always the, the interesting part because either everybody talks and asks questions or the 6 million people on, a, on the um, attendee side stay quiet. Uh, but I want to open it up to uh, the attendees or the public to be able to ask George any questions or JV with them. Or So, Presley, there's also a request in the chat. Um, you know, is there any networking with other attendees at the end? Um, so it's a networking question in the chat just to point you to. Um, let's see. Whoever, um, oh, it doesn't show who asked. Um, Roberto the easiest way, um, well, two ways. Well, the first way I was going to say to network is you can put your information in the chat and there should be a way on your Zoom side to save the chat. That way, obviously, you have everybody's information saved. Um, what I like to do when the group size is manageable and it's, it's pretty manageable, people keep popping in and out, uh, but it's still a pretty manageable size. Um, if you feel comfortable, if nobody has questions for George, what I'd like to do is go down the list um, or whoever speaks up to, you know, say your name, say what you do um, and say what you might be looking for. That way, somebody else on the call, um, if they need you or you need them, obviously you guys can hear each other, exchange information or put your information in the chat. Um, it might be an investor here on a call that, you know, George can use or George might have some information or something that you guys um, would like to use. So don't be shy, but uh, does anybody have any questions for George? As the chat box is blowing up. <laughs> I feel like Justin Smith's got to have a question for um, me. I'll make up a name later, but I'll call them my uh, the gold members. Um, Jay, I saw you earlier on Tim's um, Tim's call. Um, Jay is an amazing supporter. Uh, Melvin don't count because he's my partner. <laughs> uh, but Justin and, and Tracy, um, I appreciate you guys. 
uh, joining again. We have quite a few regulars. Um, some come soon as we start around eight o'clock and sometimes uh, they'll come after 8.30. What I actually found out, funny story, George, is all of the media uh, says that the call starts at eight central. Somehow from the first, uh, first podcast that I did up until maybe the fifth, Zoom had it starting at 8.30. So Zoom was sending out information to say, hey, podcast starts at 8.30. Um, and, you know, people are looking at whatever's most recent. So I couldn't figure out why at 8.30 or 8.20, I was getting five or 10 people jumping on a call. I just figure, you know, people have stuff to do with, you know, uh, the evening time during the middle of the week, people getting the kids ready. So we have the, the chat is going crazy, but nobody has any questions for George. And if not, so um, I'll, I'll let's see if anyone, well, let's do this. Going once, going twice, any questions for George? Chris, let me chime in quickly on the question. You know, when we have syndicators right, so on. Nobody has questions for George. Um, Jay, you have to speak up because you know you know this is like rice. I can't see. It's like little little balls of white text. I can't read any of that. So, uh, Jay, I'm going to call you out. You could take yourself off of mute and ask the questions. Uh, oh, okay. You're giving uh, your information. No, you asked the question. Oh, okay. So, um, let's go down the list and whoever wants to, uh, comment their name and what they do or what they look, they're looking for, um, speak now forever, hold your peace. I value George's time and I don't want to keep him on here forever. Presley, can you hear me? Presley? Really not. I'm dead in the period he can hear you. George, can you hear me? Justin, yeah, did you, Melvin, uh, I can hear you. Do you want to just go, go forward with your question? <laughs> I wonder why George, I wonder why Preston can't hear. I was just going to say, so all, right, the attendees well, all the information is in the chat. So, George, any last words for our audience? Um, I did not tell you this, um, but the podcast, well, we will upload the video so you can share it as well, but it will also be on all the podcast outlets, um, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and the, the whole whatever list. Um, but did you have any last words or words of encouragement to uh, the world who was listening to us through their outlets or to the people in the audience uh, on the call now? Sure, I can give you a send out, but it looks like Melvin has been trying mute. to ask a uh, quick question. You're on mute or I can't hear you. Let's see, one or the other. Hold on. Maybe I just can't hear you. Yeah. Can you hear us now? Let's try that. There you go. Can you hear us All right, now? Can you hear us now? Yeah. All right, perfect. Yeah, Melvin had a question. Go ahead, Melvin. Yeah, you get you get us on mute or something. Uh, I just want to say to the attendees, when we have these syndicators on. Uh, their their experience is invaluable knowledge for you all. Um, so think about that. I know that a lot of there was a lot of silence tonight, but I mean, you can't teach what a lot of these guys go through, going from their you know from zero to their first deal. Um, and then even you know there can there can be lessons learned going from deals you know one to two, et cetera. Uh, so you know feel free to you know, invite you to pick their brains because you're going to get 
um, extremely valuable insider information um, that a lot of these gurus are, you know, take their charging for, and you're getting it directly from them, right? You know, they're actually doing it here. So, um, you know, in the future, just keep that in mind. Well, thank you. And if you're just looking for a send out, I, I know that uh, Presley asked people to talk about what they do and what they're looking for. I can say, look, I like to be a, a GP, co-GP, KP, LP. So just reach out to me if you got a deal. I'd love to see it. And if you think I can help you uh, cross the line, then definitely reach out and I'd love to, uh, to work with you. And I'll give you a quick send out business is war. And the people who succeed are the ones who are always searching for an advantage. So go out there in the rough and tumble of the business world. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, George. I appreciate that. All right. Since I had uh, apparently a little bit of um, speaker, speak, speaker trouble, um, did anybody want to say anything and couldn't speak because my computer's crazy? All right. I don't see any takers. So, George, hey, I, I just want to say, Preston. Go ahead. Justin Smith here. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Just want to say great job on this uh, on this this webinar uh, piece, George. Sounds like uh, things are going well out in your space. Um, I'm just wondering. Um, maybe this is a question for George, or you could take this, Presley, with respect to syndications and deal flow. Given the changes in interest rate, how has that affected the deals that you're underwriting and evaluating? I'll let George answer first and then I'll answer. Sure, that's a question that I've been putting to my group on Wednesdays. I know you join us sometimes on Wednesdays, Justin, and people are adapting in many ways. I mean, again, I'm adapting in terms of that. I just like those mom and pop deals. I like seller financing. I could do another heavy reposition if I got seller financing. I don't want to do that with a bridge right now. And uh, more than anything, I think that financing piece, it, it really it really changes a lot. It makes seller financing worth that much more. And anytime that you, you don't have to go to a bridge, the deal becomes that much sweeter. Awesome answer. Um, my answer is make well not make the deal work but if the deal doesn't if it doesn't pencil it doesn't pencil so you're look for a deal that pencils also understand what the economic on a macro and a micro scale are coming so for example we are supposed to have another three um interest rate hikes from the fed um july from what i've heard is supposed to be another 75 basis points, um, another 50 basis points in sometime in the fall, October, November, something like that. And then uh, another one a month or two after that. So three, three more hikes. There are several ways that you can utilize this information in your underwriting. Obviously, you're going to underwrite very conservatively because if you're buying the deal tomorrow, because you're not buying it right now, you're buying it tomorrow because you have to underwrite it first. If you're buying the deal tomorrow, then you're trying to look even further out, you know, maybe uh, 90 days for a close and try to as much as possible um, expect whatever the interest rate might be then. 
Um, that is part of also building up your relationships. And so it's really important to have relationships. Most important is with the sellers, um, but it's also really important to have relationships with the brokers. I think that's kind of a given, but you also want to develop and craft relationships with your support industry. Um, one being specifically your loan officer or uh, a group of loan officers that you can contact and ask that information. So you will call one of your contacts and say, hey, you know, in your opinion, your professional opinion, what should I underwrite this property as, uh, as far as the interest rate? Um, and then just maneuver from there. But basically, if, if the deal does not pencil, don't try to make it work. Move on to the next deal. Keep moving on to the next deal until you find a deal like George did. And you're trying to figure out why nobody has bought this property yet is because it was meant for you. Did that uh, kind of answer your question, Justin? Yes, it does. Um, and and it, no, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. And the other thing that I try to do is get really creative uh, with respect to how to put those deal structures together. But I mean, I think the the key that you just mentioned that you know if a deal doesn't work out, if the underwriting doesn't work out, you know, turn off the computers. It's, it's done. It's a wrap. You know, mm -hmm. don't try to don't try to force it to make it happen. So. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of um, a lot of deal flow in my in my email um, of properties that have come back on the market. And, you know, the brokers don't say properties back on the market. They just <laughs> re-advertise it like nothing ever happened. Uh, but I, I am seeing quite a few of those. Another issue is uh, it's something that you guys might want to look out for. Interest rates were amazing up until now, at least for the last probably five years, um, they were sub fives, which, you know, we're used to a six to eight and they were below that. Well, what's happening to the property that somebody bought a hundred units at a 3.8% and it's an interest only, and it was only a three-year interest only. And now they have to, you know, figure out what they're going to do after that. If, they didn't underwrite conservatively enough. They really don't have anything to position to or to pivot to because the interest rate changes is almost doubling um, in, a, in a lot of cases. Um, I saw some stuff come up in the chat. Um, did anyone have another question for me or George? All right, go on once. Going twice. All right, George, you've been amazing. I hope to have you on again. Uh, feel free to join us any and every Tuesday. So guys, we do this every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Central um, on the other side of my art gallery. <laughs> um, also, we have uh, our multifamily course uh, we'll be launching next week. Um, we've been working really, really, really hard on it, which is why I wasn't um, always inside the conference room for DealMaker Live. But I appreciate you, George. Thank you for coming on and give us, giving us your expertise. And I will speak to everyone next week. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come on your show, Presley. Thank you. All right. See you guys later. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye.